Heavenly Father, as we hear your word read and preached to us now, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, convict our hearts of sin, and point us to Jesus our Saviour. For his name's sake we pray. Amen. 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 Margaret's uh, going to read for us. The reading is taken from John chapter 1 on page 1064 of the Blue Bibles. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning round, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, uh, Margaret, uh, for reading for us. Do get that page open. Let me pray as we come to look at this uh, great passage uh, this evening. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for that uh, wonderful invitation to come and to see. And we pray, Lord, even now that as we do that, as we come to your word, that we would see uh, Jesus and see him clearly and find uh, life in his name. To help us be among us, we pray to that end for your glory and for our good. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Peanut butter and jam in a sandwich. Uh, perhaps you've tried it, uh, but when I first met an American at school who never missed an opportunity to enthuse about his packed lunch, uh, I, I was sceptical. I mean, who ever came up with the idea of putting those two things together? Bizarre. Well, in the beginning of John's Gospel, uh, we are introduced, aren't we, to Jesus Christ. And we discover, I think, two things about him that we would never uh, in a million years put together unless it was revealed to us. John tells us, doesn't he, the word becomes flesh. The word becomes flesh. The word who was God, who was with God, uh, the word who spoke and brought all of creation into existence became human, became a creature and came to live uh, among us. And it's so mind-bogglingly strange that many simply dismiss John's great claim. But rather than backing away from that claim, in our passage we see John continuing to affirm that claim and to rub our noses in it. And in these uh, remarkable encounters, we find ourselves being presented both with the sheer greatness of Jesus and his astonishing nearness. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And tonight, I really want to simply to uh, help us glimpse both of those two great things that make Jesus so unexpected and yet so gloriously wonderful. And my prayer is that as we see Jesus in our passage this evening, we would long to introduce him uh, to others and invite others to come and see. Well, last time we saw, didn't we, that Jesus is God's, God's chosen one. God marks out Jesus, doesn't he? Uh, underlines his uniqueness and his greatness as the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus and remains with him. It's God's way of saying this is the one. Uh, notice Jesus wasn't sort of picked out from a line. He didn't uh, have his name pulled out of a hat. Um, he didn't win some competition. God the Father puts his stamp of approval on him. And the right response for us is to sit up and take uh, notice. And now in these verses, in a space of probably not much more than a week, uh, John piles up these titles and just starts to present some of the evidence that reveals the glorious greatness of Jesus. So look down at verse 36, Jesus steps uh, into view and John the Baptist immediately points him out as, uh, uh, to his own disciples. Look, he says, the Lamb of God. This is just the second appearance of Jesus in John's Gospel and strikingly both times this is the thing John wants people most to know. This is God's Lamb, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And we saw it in me last time, it was uh, through the offering of a lamb that God's people experienced rescue and redemption back in Egypt. The lamb was killed, the blood of the lamb was spilled and applied, and sheltering under that blood, uh, God's people were saved. The judgment that should have fallen on the people falls instead on the substitute lamb. And here for the second time, John identifies Jesus as God's lamb. And if we have found shelter in Jesus, if we have tasted anything of that glorious, guilt-freeing forgiveness, if we've discovered that Jesus is our lamb, who shed his blood for our sins, we know that we just how glorious and great Jesus is. 
No one has given their lives for the sin of the world except Jesus. And that's why he's great. That's why he's precious uh, to us. Just this week I was listening to the radio and I was listening to a program about climate change. I was thinking, just imagine if there was someone out there, um, a leader perhaps, who found a solution that solved the climate crisis, that fixed our relationship with our broken planet. Uh, wouldn't, we, wouldn't we celebrate their greatness? But here, says John, is the one who gets beyond the symptoms, beyond the, pre the presenting issues, and fixes our broken relationship with our creator by being that lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Well, these two disciples uh, hear that and are intrigued, aren't they? And they begin, verse 37, uh, to, to shadow Jesus, uh, to get a closer look. And Jesus, knowing that they're there, uh, turns around and asks them what they want. We'll come back to this encounter shortly, but notice they, they address Jesus, didn't they, as rabbi or, or teacher. Now, in Jewish culture, that was a, a title of high respect and authority, I wonder what they know about what they're saying. See, in the, in the coming chapters, John's going to show that Jesus isn't just a, you know, a good teacher. He's the teacher. Uh, not someone who just can speak some truth, but actually is the one revealed as truth. Someone whose words don't simply improve life, but give divine life, eternal life, to those who trust him. And I love that moment, just in a couple of pages in John's Gospel, where we find Jesus teaching very difficult, uh, too de demanding for many, and many walk away. And Jesus turns to his small band of followers and says, are you going to leave too? And Simon Peter replies immediately, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So as you've been reminded on Sunday mornings, we want to listen big, don't we, to this one who is the teacher. Um, no other words can give us life. No other words in our culture uh, trump the beauty and power of his words. And as we allow his words to direct us and to shape us, uh, we discover indeed they are life-giving words. That's how great Jesus is. Maybe you're surrounded by people at uh, school or people uh, at work or at home who don't take Jesus' words seriously. And then perhaps for us to acknowledge Jesus as not just a teacher but the teacher would seriously damage our credibility with some people, even our relationships uh, could get put on the line. But the question is, where else can we go? Whose words will we trust? Who will be our teacher if not Jesus? He is great only he has the words of eternal life and that's why he is great and that's why we listen to him and follow him well as these uh, two disciples uh, follow jesus and take his offer up uh, to come and see notice how those hours spent with jesus prove as jesus predicted to be eye-opening Andrew has just one thing on his mind as he leaves Jesus a little, many, many hours later, verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. And that, that word Messiah, of course, is a, is a loaded term, isn't it? If we know our Old Testaments, we know it's packed with significance and meaning. But even if we don't know our Old Testaments, we, don't, we have a sense don't we, of the significance of a word like the word Messiah. Oh. 
Uh, I'm a, a Crystal Palace supporter. I don't get a chance very often on Sunday to uh, bring up my team in a sermon, but you might recognise that man. Uh, his name is Roy Hodgson, our team's current manager. And on several occasions, the word Messiah has been applied to Roy. Like the time when he rescued Fulham from certain relegation. Uh, an unbelievable 12 points out of 15 in their final five games, including a win over Man City. John Shepherd, if you're listening. Uh, that kept them in the Premier League. And more importantly, Roy joined Palace when they had just, won, uh, just, sorry, just lost the seven first games of the season. Uh, no club has ever done so bad in the beginning and, re- and survived and avoided relegation. We all pinned our hopes on Roy and he delivered turning defeat into unlikeliest victory, hopeless losers into to winners. And this picture makes me smile. That's Roy apparently arriving at an airport and getting a hero's pocket. Of course, the wait for the Messiah for the Jews had lasted centuries, and the anticipation had grown as the Bible began to give tantalising glimpses of who this person would be and what he would do. And now as Andrew meets Jesus, he has uh, his eyes open to that stunning reality that the wait is over. The one they just spent the day with is that ultimate game changer, that deliverer, the one worthy of all our hopes and longings, the one who alone can turn defeat into victory and life. And in just a couple of verses, don't be here, Nathaniel, don't be uh, declaring that Jesus is the king of Israel. And Messiah literally means anointed one, God's king. And if the Bible contains great stories of kings who fought battles and led and delivered their people, often against the odds, people like David who defeated Goliath, they were only ever just a warm-up act uh, for God's ultimate Messiah. He's the one who comes to fight for his people uh, and conquer our greatest enemies, sin, Satan, death. How great, how wonderful is that. And notice too, you don't have just to take John's words or Andrew's word on the greatness of Jesus. Look down at verse 45. You discover the whole Old Testament testifies to Jesus, who he is and what he will do. Listen to Philip as he grasps something truly remarkable. We have found the one, he says, that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. They're quite staggering words, aren't they? Uh, They have been great people. We've had books written about them uh, during their lives, um, sometimes after their lives. But can you think of anyone so great as to have an entire book written about them before they're even born? It's all about Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. It all revolves around him. That's how staggeringly great he is. So Noah and the Ark, it's about Jesus. Joshua fighting the Battle of Jericho, it's about Jesus. David and Goliath, it's all about Jesus. Down the lions, it's about Jesus. And so as we read the Old Testament, and uh, we are thinking about something is coming, someone is coming who is greater than Noah and Joshua and David and Daniel, someone greater, more glorious. And here in verse 45, that reality dawns on Philip. I found him. I've met him. Can you see the greatness of Jesus? Perhaps the most stunning statement about Jesus here in our passage is one that sets him apart from all others and spoken remarkably by a sceptic and a cynic. Look down at verse 
45. Uh, Philip finds Nathanael and says, we found the promised one, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael's response is one of utter contempt. Nazareth, he snorts, and can anything good uh, come from there? Can anything great come from a dump like Nazareth? Seriously. But Nathanael gets to meet uh, Jesus discovers that Jesus knows him completely like no other. Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, says Jesus, of Nathanael. I don't think that Jesus is saying that Nathanael was without sin. I think he's saying he's someone who speaks his mind, who says what he thinks, in whom there's no pretense. And Nathanael's humbled, isn't he? He's dumbfounded and flawed. And he just sees enough of Jesus' greatness in that revelation to turn this cynic into a believer, verse 49. You are the Son of God, King of Israel. It's a wonderful moment, isn't it? A glimpse of Jesus that opens Nathaniel's eyes uh, to the reality of John's opening words. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word has come in person in flesh. And it's a mind-stretching reality that John's going to be unpacking uh, for us through the rest of his Gospel. Uh, this one person with a unique an eternal relationship with the Father, the one who always was God and with God, the one who's created everything. Nothing was created that wasn't made by him. The one who reveals God for us and ends all the guessing games about what he's like. Well, as John describes these, these first moments as Jesus takes center stage, and no wonder there's, there's gas on there, wonder, uh, cries of acknowledgement, you see how, how huge this is? Do you see the greatness of Jesus? The one John calls the word. Not just worthy of wonder, but of our worship and our lives. But in these uh, same verses, John gives us, doesn't he, also an astonishing picture of not only Jesus' greatness, but also his mind-blowing, uh, spine-tingling nearness. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So imagine you're spending a day in London and as you wander around you notice that the roads are lined with barriers and policemen. You don't even have rocket scientists do to work out what's going on. Someone great is passing by. Uh, that's what the barriers are there for, keeping you away from greatness. That's how greatness works. It comes with barriers and security guards and gates. But here in these verses of John's Gospel, greatness could not get any closer or nearer. So look down at verse 36. Uh, John tells us that Jesus is passing by. I wonder whether there's an echo there of something that happened in the Old Testament, where Moses got a glimpse of God's glory as he passed by. Just a, a very small glimpse as God passed by. He was in a cleft in a rock and he just saw the back, as it were, of God as he passed. The briefest of glances. But now as Jesus passes by, these two disciples get much more of a glimpse, don't they? Jesus turns to them and says, what do you want? Literally, what are you seeking? Actually, it's quite a deep question, isn't it? A searching question. What are they seeking? What are we all seeking and searching for? We're searching, I think, for glory. And we think we can find it in perhaps in the beauty of a sunset, in the joy of human love, in celebrity, in all kinds of places. 
in places that offer to transform the mundane and ordinary into the glorious and great. But all these things are only echoes reflecting glory. But here is the one who truly is glorious and great. And incredibly, instead of barriers and no entry signs, there is a surprising invitation, verse 39, come and see. I wonder if Jesus did give um, the disciples a tour of his place where he lived. I don't know. But much more excitingly, um, much more glorious than that, uh, these two guys get to uh, spend an entire day just hanging out with Jesus. Getting close up and personal to true greatness. What an experience. What an amazing day. And if we don't uh, feel the audaciousness of Jesus' invitation, then we simply need to remember who's making the invitation, the one who is the Word, the Lamb, the Messiah, the one who created them, sustains them, and one day will die on a cross to save them. The Word becoming flesh, dwelling among us. No gates, no barriers, just the invitation to come, uh, not to follow at a distance, but actually to hang out with Jesus with infinite greatness. Well, that's great, isn't it, for Andrew, for Philip, and for Nathaniel, and Simon. But before we think that we're 2,000 years too late, wonderfully, that promise of nearness, I think, remains, even for us. Uh, just this week, I was reading um, some words, also recorded by John, at the very last book, in the very last book of the Bible, words of Jesus to Christians in a city called Laodicea. John, having presented us with the sheer greatness of Jesus in that first chapter of that amazing book, uh, he records those words of Jesus to those Christians. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And that invitation and promise is held out to us to, to hear Jesus' words, uh, to welcome and receive them, and so to receive him as he comes to draw near to fellowship with us through the Holy Spirit. In this week, uh, we're in our staff meeting, our parish staff meeting, we were looking at the story of, of Zacchaeus, a notorious uh, tax collector, hated and cancelled by his own community, who makes this wonderful discovery that Jesus wants to hang out with him. And if you remember, it's a discovery, isn't it, that turns his world upside down, that all that he'd, he'd value, all that he'd sacrificed so much for, suddenly seems so much less important compared to, to knowing Jesus and to spending time with him. And even this week, I was wondering why at times I'm so slow to open up God's word, uh, to open up this, this book that's all about Jesus and simply to enjoy being with him. Why my first waking thought is, how can I spend time today in his company, consciously, hanging out with him? But there are, I think, a couple of other beautiful, I think, glimpses of the nearness and closeness of Jesus that I think should take our breath away here in our passage. Just want to point them out and maybe you can explore them a bit more in this coming week. So Simon is introduced to Jesus through uh, his excited brother, Andrew. And as Jesus and Simon meet, notice what Jesus says in verse 42. He says to him, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Peter, Cephas. 
Jesus knows suddenly Simon's name. Not something greatness normally does. Greatness might wave from a distance, but Jesus knows Simon by name. And then he does something really weird, doesn't he? He gives Simon a new name. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Just imagine coming up to me after the service and saying, Andrew, I know you're Andrew, but for now I'm, I'm calling you Dave. Jesus says, you are Simon. From now on you'll be called Peter, a rock. If I was Andrew at this point in the, in the story, I think I would be laughing. I know my brother pretty well. Anyone less rock-like than Peter or Simon, I can't think. Indeed, we can discover, aren't we, through the Gospels, that in the moment of truth, Simon is the one who crumbles. But Jesus doesn't just know Simon's name. He knows Simon fully. And that includes his under, being under no illusions about Simon's flaws and his failures. But even here, Jesus also knows the man that he will make Simon into through his power and grace. He knows what Simon will become, the kind of rock that precious things can be built on. And this week I was reflecting on just how very personal Jesus is with us. Like Simon, Jesus knows us through and through. He's under no illusions about our flaws, our besetting sins. And his plans for us, just as for Simon, are not some off-the-peg, generic uh, improvement program, but they're as personal as in, an individual as our own names. And here's Jesus making it clear that in close relationship with us, he has the power and the desire to change us and make each one of us the unique person that we were created to be. Later again, in that final book of the Bible, John uh, recalls the promise Jesus makes to Christians in the church of Pergamon. To the one who hears and overcomes, I will give that person a, a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives it. See, Jesus comes close enough to each one of us because he's committed to doing something very unique and very specific in each of our lives. You see, when he's working all things together for our good, he's not using some kind of algorithm, but working in the details of our personalities and our circumstances, even our flaws and weaknesses. And Simon's life is going to show, showcase, as it were, that work in the most amazing of ways. So follow Jesus this week. Stay close to him. Hang out with him and discover who you are and what you are designed to be. We're almost out of time, but again, there's one more, uh, one more wonderful hint of Jesus' nearness, I think, in that calling of Nathaniel. Do you remember Nathaniel's dismissive response to Philip, can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, perhaps Nazareth was a slough of, uh, of Israel, I don't know. Anyone from slough? Sorry, I shouldn't say it, should I? that's not a good idea. Anyway, and yet in eternity past, God, as it were, picks out that place, doesn't he, for his son uh, to grow up in. Isn't that remarkable? Greatness is going to rub shoulders with the very ordinary and unspectacular, with the downtrodden, and Jesus is going to get very close to the muck and the mess. So he comes, and not keeping his distance, not remaining aloof, uh, not wearing PPE, but coming very close to sinners, the prostitutes, the possessed, the poor. And he's going to get so close that not only will he experience the mess of our sin, he will become sin save us. That's how close he comes. 
Well, Nathaniel's cynicism and skepticism are blown away by Jesus' personal knowledge of him. He's humble. He glimpses the greatness and the closeness of Jesus. And then Jesus ends our passage promising Nathaniel a greater glimpse still. Look down at verse 51. Very truly, I, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, Jesus is taking us back to the Old Testament, to that famous moment where a young man called Jacob, uh, fleeing from his brother, uh, lies down in a very remote place and has a dream about a ladder reaching up into heaven and angels dancing, as it were, up and down that ladder. And as he wakes, he realises that God, the God who seemed very distant, very far away, was much closer than he realised. He said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't aware of it. And now do you see, Jesus here is declaring that he's the ladder that Jacob saw. Yeah, he's the one bringing together the great and the ordinary, the holy and the unholy. I wonder for that ladder is not a ladder of self-improvement to climb up, but actually a person to freely receive. Jesus brings what was once distant and inaccessible so incredibly near. Great chasm between God and sinful humanity closed, bridged in Jesus. And when we hear Jesus crying out, it is finished on the cross, we realise the glory that Nathanael's glimpsed here in our chapter. It's just the hors d'oeuvres, isn't it? Or something far, far greater. The glorious greatness and nearness of Jesus. The words become flesh, says John, and has dwelt among us. And John says, we have seen his glory and if we have as I finish won't we will do exactly what Andrew and Philip and others are doing here looking for ways grabbing opportunities to introduce others to Jesus notice these guys didn't do an evangelism training course they just had a glimpse of the greatness and nearness of Jesus the invitation to come and see from Jesus becomes the cry, doesn't it, of his followers, of those who day by day are discovering just how great he is and how near he's come. Well, my prayer for myself and for us in this exciting month of gospel endeavour is that we would keep delighting in the word who has become flesh and by his spirit dwells among us so that we might signpost others to Jesus too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful chapter. Thank you for these wonderful verses that remind us again of the greatness of Jesus. Open our eyes to see something of that majesty, that coming of Jesus as the lamb to, to be the sin for us. The Messiah who rules and reigns and turns things utterly around. And yet invites us to enjoy experiencing him day by day, uh, eating with him, um, experiencing that closeness through the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray even this week that we would spend as much time as we can enjoying uh, Jesus, that we might have our eyes open to see him more clearly and therefore be able to, with more joy and enthusiasm, point others to him too. To help us, we pray, to that end, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Oh,